Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, for your grace, so um, freely distributed among us um, as unworthy humans, but yet you loved us and sent your Son to die on the cross, to be our propitiation. And through that death, his burial, and the resurrection, we are uh, deemed firstborn in your family and adopted into your family and just... You shower us with grace in an amazing way, and we are just thankful for that, Father. Bless this discussion. May it be encouraging to us. May we learn more about the fullness of man and the greatness of your love and your desire for us to be reconciled to you. Father, may it just be a fruitful discussion and uh, give us good um, conversation and may our ears be receptive and hearts be receptive to uh, the words being preached by Ryan uh, during service. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. So let's get rolling. The first paragraph in here says, Although God created man upright and perfect, <coughs> gave him a righteous law, which had been kept, which had been unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given to them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. Someone's got Genesis 2. Let's hear 16 through 17 to kind of give us a backdrop of where we are. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. All right. And then down in Genesis 3... Verses 12 through 13. The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. All right. I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians 11.3 and we'll hear the context of this verse. I'm going to back up to 11.1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So what's the... <laughs> Reading these three verses, these three sets of verses, what's the general context, the general theme of this first paragraph? It's not a tricky question. It's pretty straightforward. Deception. We had a righteous and perfect law that God gave to us. To Adam, I should say, to Adam and Eve. 
Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it. The intent was for him to keep this law and live eternally. And threaten death upon the breach thereof. Well, certainly we learn what the result of this was. He did not abide in his honor, and Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation. So through the cunning ways of the serpent, and we've got that listed even in the New Testament, um, in 2 Corinthians, but I'm as a, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So clearly here, we have this image of cunning and deception by the enemy, which is the tactic, I believe, that the enemy loves to use to sort of weave his way in to so many different areas of our life by letting you think that even the way that he deceived Eve, I, I think, was, was really key. That was back in 16. Let me find the verse. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We may eat of the tree, fruit of the uh, trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither you shall touch it lest you die. <laughs> but the serpent said, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Taking something that has a shred a semblance of truth to it and twisting it into a way that is cunning and deceptive. And I, I feel like that's a tactic the enemy uses and was used on Adam and Eve in the garden. By seducing Adam without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given to them, eating forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel to permit having purposed to order it to his own glory. <clears throat> I think it's an interesting way to end the paragraph, but certainly God in his omnipotence and omniscience knew that this would transgress and that he would be able to unfold his plan after the fall of Adam not obeying the perfect and righteous law that was given. So that's a pretty straightforward paragraph. Anything else you guys notice or through the verses or through the, the words of that paragraph that kind of stick out? I'm fascinated by the simplicity of not, not the paragraph, but the, the, the original fall. Yeah. It's like, here's home. Here's everything. Just don't go there. That's it. Just don't go there. Don't go there. Okay, fine. Don't go there. <laughs> Isn't it, though, reflective of the true nature of humans, of the fact that we are a people, we were given free will by God, and in our core, we desire some level of control in a way, 
or desire that we should do not what's being told of us. Exactly. Not control. That's not quite the right word. I guess after the fall, then you see the, the fight for control. I, I, I was going to push back on control initially, but as I was listening to you talking, I was thinking about the process. I'm like, no, it's con- like, I was going to say, we, we always want what we can't have. We want to do what yeah. we're told not to do. That's it. That's exactly what it is. But that's a level of control. It's a level of control. I want to do what you're telling me I can't do or shouldn't do, so I'm going to exert control in this situation mm-hmm. and do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And it always ends poorly. It does. It, 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 like you said, the, the simplicity is absolutely astounding. That it literally was a command of not eating of this tree. You can have everything else here, <laughs> but not that. Right. You know what's funny? I'm sitting there thinking, man, this Adam really screwed up everything because this has made everybody be frustrated by, mm-hmm. by this steady nature. And yet, as I started to think it, I was thinking, and that's your nature. Yeah. Exactly. So what does it say in paragraph two? Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Someone has Romans... I'll read 3.23. Someone wants to read Romans 5, but I'll read Romans 3.23 to get us started. Well, I'll start back to 21 because I like this whole paragraph. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But the key there, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Pretty straightforward, clear delineation in Romans of our sin state as a humanity, as a totality of humanity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who's got Romans 5? Romans 5.12. You can read 12 through 14, actually. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of of the one who was to come. Thanks, Kevin. So, clearly, this is painting the image that we are fallen, and as a humanity, we are depraved. 
Now, I listened to a really interesting podcast. I don't know if there's any White Horse Inn listeners in the room, but there was a really interesting podcast on total depravity. And I thought it was really interesting that when we talk about total depravity, we talk about this aspect that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Scriptural and very, very important. Something that really struck me that was written or that, that they talked about was thinking about what total depravity really means and who we are as a humanity. You have to go back to the original creation. Because what were we intended? This is maybe a leading question. Again, I didn't prepare this lesson necessarily, but this is just me out loud thinking. What were we intended? What did God intend man to be when he created us? He created us in what? His image. In his image. What does that tell you about what God thinks of humanity? He created us in his own image, created us in a way that he wants to love his creation in his own image. That shows some significance in humanity. And so, yes, we are totally depraved. Yes, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But his idea is to restore us back to a place to where he created us in his own image. There's a beauty of humanity that we can't forget because oftentimes we tell ourselves, we're rotten, we're filthy, we're, we're, we're worthless. It's, there's truth in that. But God created humanity with intrinsic value, with a beauty that, that God created man in his own image. After our likeness, this is in 126, that God said, let us make man in our own image. After our likeness. If God didn't want us, if God didn't think we had intrinsic value, he wouldn't make us in his own image. He would just say he was making a creation. But he made us in his own image. And it gives us some intrinsic value. Yet Adam botched that up <laughs> in the garden by the fall. But we were created. And so what does total depravity really mean then? If you, if you go to verses 10 through 19 in, in Romans 3, I think this is a really good depiction. Let me go back to Romans. Romans 3, 10 through 19. So then with that, what, is the, what does total depravity mean to you? The fact that we are fallen as a humanity. It's again, kind of a leading question, but just, just out loud. What, what does that mean to you then? Yes, we are, we're, yes, we have fallen short of the glory of God. This is a very leading question. <clears throat> what does it tell you about the ability of our fallen state, of the Holy Spirit, to be able to reside in us in our fallen state. He can, we can. In our fallen state, there's no good resting place for the Holy Spirit because we are depraved in our body. So 10 through 19, for we have already, as it is written, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursedness and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruined in mis misery, i.e. there's no good resting place for the Holy Spirit in our broken, sinful body. Whoa. 
except for Christ. Well, exactly. So once we are redeemed, then the Holy Spirit has a resting place because we are redeemed in his sight. But this is the fallenness of man. This is man in his fallen state. Good morning. It should also be noted just briefly that just because we have the dwelling Holy Spirit in us, um, we are still looking forward to a hope of being glorified. Absolutely. Therefore, though the Lord may be in be indwelling in us and may empower us to be able to do good through the Holy Spirit, not apart from um we have yet to be fully redeemed, so that's not our sanctification pathway. Obviously, we, we live in this um, not yet state of hoping for our future and eternal glorification. And as we talked about in the sanctification class, it looks more like we've, we've entered into kind of we've entered into peace with God. Yes, but we've also begun a warfare against our own fleshly nature sometimes, so it's not complete. Maybe draw a V-fib, Larry. Maybe that'd be more accurate. (laughs) (laughs) But our sanctification is more of this, like, progressive nature that we're going to struggle into. But but as we continue to conform, and as we continue to pray the Lord's um, blessings over us, that we can uh, be more like Him and learn more like Him and, and uh, and do more like him, then we can uh, progress in, in that way. But it's going to be a tough fall battle, and eventually we will have glorification when we reach the feet of the Father. That's kind of the progressive nature. I think that's an important point to make. I don't know how to say this, but is the, you said you know the Holy Spirit doesn't have a, a real resting place in us, right? Can you imagine the Holy Spirit's going, Lord, I don't want to go down there and be in that place. <laughs> That is such a junk. <laughs> but, it, but you know what's interesting about that, Jeff? The, the, the reality is that's the broken nature of our humanity that the Holy Spirit doesn't. But when we have the blood of Christ that has served as our propitiation, we then have a different image to the Spirit. Mm-hmm. That then we have, we, we are a resting place for the Spirit to then come within us. And as Devin said, then it's a continue a fall battle through our life until that day we reach eternal glorification. Anything else in that paragraph? Again, building the context of the depravity of man, the fallenness up to sin, and then the demands against us because of that. Number three, they being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed, and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin, and by nature, children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them Free. <clears throat> Thoughts? I'm going to turn this one to the group first. 
don't think we have any more guides if you don't have one. But You can also get it on your phones or your iPads from the church's website as well, under what we believe. Standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. I.e., we continually, perpetually are a fallen, broken people. Romans 5. Let's go back to that because I think it lays it out. I think we even read 12 through 19. Actually, someone has... Well, I can, I can read that. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was, in, was indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay, so break down that parallel. What do we have? What do we have as a parallel in these two, in, the, in the, these section of verses? Uh, the failure of Adam and the success of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And it, it, it very clearly states in multiple occasions one man and what happened for generations <laughs> from that one man's trespass. 15. For if many died through one man's trespass. I love the parallel though. This is really nice. Paul's Parallel is just, it's very comforting because you've got, it's like up and down. You've got, ugh, and you've got, you know, it's kind of like that, uh, the, the, those images of like sports events or something like that. And it's like, yeah, and then you're like, you know, all the sadness and then, yeah, and then, because you've got both of those parallels here. You've got, for many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So like you said, just very, very succinctly, the failure of Adam and the success of Christ. For if one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. But you know, even the way you say that, it broadens the way that leads to destruction. And narrow is, you know, it's like, can you compare the two? Mm-hmm. 
and I mean, we without without Jesus, we have no life. But I'm looking at that, and I'm going, it's it's a narrow road. There's there's not a lot of people that are gonna survive this thing. I think where's the the context? What verse is that? Do you know? I don't. Because I'm wondering if the context of that is speaking to those that there's a thought that you can carry yourself by your own bootstraps. And if that case is, if that's the case, the, the narrowness is like, if you think you can do it all, then you've got a narrow ability to actually succeed, to follow every dot and cross every T of the law. Because that's virtually impossible. Oh, I see. So Matthew 7, 13. Okay, so that's in the context of, of the fact that if you think you can do it yourself, you got a narrow road to be able to walk that virtually no one, only one man, has truly done that. There's truth in the fact that there's only one way, which is Christ's death and resurrection. And his death and resurrection is the vehicle, that propitiation, that allows us to come to the foot of the Father as firstborn. Broadway was talking about this, the people tried to travel there by their own means to mm -hmm. heaven, and instead they're walking straight to hell. I've always, I've always done that wrong. Yeah. Well, and that's that. That's the the beauty of the scriptures is there's so many things that are quotable, but the reality is it has to be taken in the context of the verses surrounding it. Right. Thank you. Because you can sometimes unknowingly misinterpret the intent of a verse if you don't take it in the context of where it's being presented. Right. Happens to us all. That's why you have to be careful about when studying the scripture. You study it in the full context. I'm curious what this Hebrews verse says here. Hebrews 2, 14-15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is talking about the victory of Christ over the original sin, over the fact that we are cursed as a people, we have Christ's death and resurrection to cover us from the fall of our head Adam. Anything else from this particular paragraph? Ephesians 2 through, I'm curious what the Ephesians verse says too. Among whom we all lived, or among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yeah. So clearly, there's scriptural evidence in many different places that talk about the depravity, the fallenness of man. Anything else about that particular paragraph? I just sort of find it, the, the word imputed or impute is sort of the, 
seems like a key word in, in, in a lot of this. And plus, you know, in, in, plus the imputation of righteousness that we get through Christ. So, right. You know, that to me, I don't, you know, my, I can't in humanly get my head around that concept. It's like it's, you know, um, looking at the word, you know, in dictionary.com it says, from a law perspective, to ascribe or charge with an act or quality because of the conduct of another over one, uh, over whom one has control or for those acts or conduct one is responsible. And so I guess, I guess Adam, because of our, because he's the head of mankind, he has that control over us. And so the, I guess the spiritual and uh, rule is that we inherit his sin. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that word impute is kind of the word that's hard to, to gather. It is. I mean, it, it carries a weight to it as well. Um, looking at the, yeah, to attribute, ascribe, like you said, I'm reading this because I wanted to see the actual definition as well, to ascribe to it or charge. The cause of the conduct of another over whom one has control, over whom these acts of conduct, one is responsible. So in that sense, Adam is responsible for the totality of humanity in that sense. And so it carries so much weight to put that on the shoulders of Adam to say that he is the one by which the rest of humanity will be judged by, by his actions. But the same for Christ in the sense that by his death, blood, burial, and resurrection that then we have that imputation on us of his action. And so it carries equal, well, when I say equal weight, obviously Christ's resurrection is superior in the sense of reigning over what Adam did, but yet it carries equal weight in the gravity of what condition it implies to humanity in that sense. Mm. When we were, when we, when Adam sinned, I mean, really, I mean, the Bible, I can't remember the particular verse, but it talks about how, it's, but it says that even though we had not sinned in the way that Adam had done, basically we have um, inherited the, his own righteousness. Um, and uh, when we were talking earlier about um, the obedience of Christ, that was a concept that was hard for me when I was younger to really grasp because the emphasis a lot of times in a more revivalistic setting is always, you know, the cross, the cross, the cross, but mm-hmm. never, while we would talk about the things of, of that Jesus did, it was never really completely understood that his work was part of redeeming me. So, right. So by one man's disobedience, sin fell on all of us. So Jesus Christ obeys. Yeah. And it's when he imputes his righteousness to us, it's not as though he somehow creates uh, a righteousness within us that is particularly our own. I guess that's what I was talking about, trying to figure out the sanctification a little bit earlier and him living in us. It's that uh, it's as though he places, God places the, the, the righteousness of Christ upon us as like a covering. Yes. It's not in essence our own, it's alien to us. But when God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of his son that we're clothed in. Right. And so he can say, because of Jesus Christ, you are my child. Yeah. And so 
No, I think that's a good, that's a that's an important distinction or an important concept there. That's, uh, I think that's 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 a then that's a good segue because the last two um, paragraphs or the last two um, paragraphs of this particular chapter from this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil do precede all actual transgressions, and then. We'll read the stuff in parentheses in a second. The corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated, and although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sinned. So to your point, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We still, as humanity, because I think there's a misconception that if once we are saved by Christ's righteousness, that we no longer sin. It's that we we still sin. We still struggle day in, day out with the realities and the, the troubles of sin. We are clothed by his righteousness. The corruption of nature does remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, the first motions are truly and properly sin. So we have the clothing of Christ on us to cover us. Yeah, I have a Cloaking device. Yeah, kind of, yeah, exactly. And we're cloaked. There you go. And it sets us up for next week. I mean, we'll we'll look through some of these verses, but it sets us up next week um, for a lesson that I will be preparing <laughs> on God's covenant. So you don't need to do that. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm flying by the seat of my pants here, Jeff. Um, but um, okay, so let's look at a few of these verses that kind of put some context in that, unless there's any overarching thoughts from those two while I pull up a verse or two. Any, anything from the group? Yeah, well, since you opened the floor up, because I always ask too many questions, sorry. It's all right. But uh, no, just to me, what you said earlier was about that whole, yeah, that the, the gift is bigger than even what Adam did. You know what I'm going? See, I didn't really get that earlier, and I'm thinking, man, so actually in the end here, we should be expecting that God will save who he's going to save, and it could be even by... Oh, I mean, did I say that? <laughs> Josh can cut that one out of the tape. <laughs> no, it's just... That would be a turn, because you, you kind of look at the world and you think, how are they going to make it? How, mm-hmm. If I know how I'm going to make it, I'm basing that on Jesus' blood. But I'm thinking, unless unless God... It's people to wake up. The only way that we will make it is through the blood of Christ and the recognition that that is our only path to eternal life at the foot of the Father. And it will be whoever the Lord convicts and leads to that knowledge of understanding. But, but even he's saying, you know, he wants the whole world to be saved. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, how's he gonna get that done? Because people are just against him. They're against. He will save who he will save, as you said. Yeah. That's kind of the. That's kind of the crux of it. Yeah, if God sets His mind upon someone to save them, He will do it. Yep. And there's a desire there for that, but He also must show His own glory in all these other ways, showing out His justice against those who sin against Him, and so on and so forth. I'm just more positive about that whole thing now because I've kind of 
thought all the whole world was gonna go to hell in a handbasket. You know, we we look at the state of the world, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm helping hijack a little bit. No, please, but, uh, yeah. We look at the state of the world, and we we and I think in every generation, people have said, "How long, the Lord?" Or it's so bad, or it's the worst it's ever been. And you know, there are places in the Bible, in the Old Testament, for example, that always I can't remember which Habakkuk or Haggai or whatever, but um, one of the particular biblical characters was praying about whatever situation, and, and you know, and someone he God would tell them, you know, I have these many people over here that have not bowed to the knee to this idol, or you know, or if uh, you can see the whole of what I was doing, you wouldn't even believe what I've got in store. So, I mean, we, we think that maybe it's the worst type of Christianity, but we really don't know how many people God has actually redeemed. Mm. So, that's a very... No, I think that's, 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 really, that's, really, that's really good. Someone read the, if you have your copy of this, read what's in the parentheses, because I think that's a nice clarifying point as we kind of, we kind of talked about, sort of, we've talked around a lot of these points, but this kind of succinctly clarifies it in here if someone has that mm. it says as it concerns any understanding of sin it is important to maintain that sin is first a state into which man is born the confession refers to this state of sin as the original corruption okay so we, we, we define that, the original corruption. The sins we commit, or actions, result directly from this greater condition of corporate and personal corruption, the state. In the fall, we first lost our standing, so that state, and then our purity, which is our condition. Our redemption first involves our salvation from the state, so that's our justification. So we have that vertical relationship with God through our justification. Through Christ's death, burial, resurrection, we have a vertical relationship with God. And then our ongoing salvation from the existing corruption, that condition, or sanctification. That's the process we talked about that most want to make it a straight line. The more we learn, the more we grow, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, it's more of a jagged edge and an up and down and a struggle and a just lifelong pursuit of it. Our redemption first involves our salvation from the state and then our ongoing salvation from the existing corruption. The state, i.e. our corporate, along with the condition, are what's defined in this confession as truly and properly sin. So as we've talked about and Devin kind of highlighted with the sanctification and the fact that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we have that state that's the vertical relationship and the condition. And that's what is being improved progressively through our life in sanctification until we reach that moment of glorification at the foot of the Father. And that's kind of the, the context. Other things. Anything... Final thoughts. Galatians 5. I think that would be good. 
I'll read this from Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are the opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I Paul kept saying in Romans, I do the things that I do not want to do, yet I know that I should not do them. This is this internal perpetual struggle that he faces and fights with. But it's this continual progressive process that will shape us and mold us to be more like Christ. Anything else from these paragraphs? I mean, this is a fairly straightforward chapter identifying the fall of man. Do we have enough time to yeah. I just, uh, I mean, I guess the, the real question is kind of, what are, what are the, all the things that we should be doing to help? I know, the, you know, having to put on the whole armor of God, transforming our minds and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So is that, is that the only things that are, you know, because I, I always worry about my salvation, even though I know I shouldn't be because... I'm justified, and I am being sanctified. But it just, it's still, it's like, you. it feels like I'm still not in the will of God, you know, and I just... You know, the one thing that D.A. Carson said, and Jeremy's played this before, but he has a little three-minute clip, and he talks about these two men during the time of the Passover, and they have families, and they worry about the Passover. You know, they're talking to each other. I'm not going to do it quite the justice, but the D.A. Carson would. I guess I could play that. But the idea is they're both talking to each other and it's like, I'm just worried about tonight. I don't know how it's going to go. It's, you know, is, is God really going to do what he said he did? He said, would you, you know, paint the blood over the doorpost? Yeah. And would you do all the things? Yeah. And he's like, aren't you worried? Aren't you scared? And he's like, no, nah, I did these things. And the, the idea is it's not the intensity of our faith. But it's who we put our faith in. It's not the, it's it's the object. What's the actual, I'm, now I'm going to have to go back, unless you know, Devin, what, what he actually said in that video, you know the one I'm talking I about? Seen that one. Let me just play, because we have the time. Because it truly is an incredible three minutes. Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. The day before the first Passover, having a little discussion in the land of Goshen, and Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the, the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood, put blood on the lintel? Haven't you, you done that? You're all ready, packed to go? You're going to eat the, the whole Passover meal with your family? Of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary. When you think of all the things that have happened around here recently, you know, flies and river turning to blood. and It's pretty awful. And, and, and now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed. You know, it's all right for you. You got three sons. I've only got one. I, I love my Charlie. And, 
and 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 the angel of death is passing through tonight. You, you, you know, I I know what what God says. I put the blood there, but but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, "Bring it on! I trust the promises of God." That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised. But on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's what silences the accuser. The blood silences the accuser of the brothers as he accuses us before God. He silences our consciences when he accuses us directly. How many times do we writhe in agony asking if God can ever love us enough, if God can ever care for us enough after we've done such stupid, sinful, rebellious things, after being Christians for 40 years? What are you going to say? Well, you know, God, I, I tried hard, you know? I did, I did my best. It was, it was a bad moment. No, 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 no. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. There is the ground of all human assurance before God. There is the ground of our faith. Not guaranteeing intensity of faith, so fickle are we. It's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. They overcome him on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. I mean, I think that's that's the reality of, of the, what, what you're getting at. But the truth is, we, we are a fallen humanity. The only way we can be justified is the blood of the Lamb. So. All right. Thanks for bearing with the uh, um, last-minute change. So, uh, Devin, would you like to close us in prayer? Thanks. Lord, Holy Father, thank you for this day that we can come together and learn of you, worship together, and hear from your word. Thank you for your many blessings, Lord, Father, that when we were lost in our sins, Lord, uh, when we were without hope, you sent your Son to obey for us, die for us, and resurrect a new life for us, Lord, that we might be saved by him, that we might get to experience your good graces, that we might have a hope in heaven. Lord, we are beyond blessed for not just everything you've done for us, but just simply for who you are. Lord, uh, thank you again. Uh, thank you for all the many blessings we have. Mm. We pray that more would come to know you, that, uh, that they would be pardoned of their sins and raised with you in a new life. In Jesus' name, pray amen. Amen.